We are continuing uh, our series this morning uh, in this rich, rich book of the Psalms, a book that's uh, magnificent for so many reasons. Uh, It's the longest book in the Bible. Uh, It has the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, so to speak, Psalm 119, uh, you might have guessed. And it took about 1,000 years uh, to write uh, with uh, several different authors writing under God's inspiration. It it truly does speak to every emotion that we experience, uh, every aspect of our lives. And so this summer, uh, specifically, we are narrowing our our look a bit in the Psalms to the wisdom Psalms. Uh, And the the Psalms uh, generally are more or less of a how-to manual, though there are instructions found in the Psalms, uh, but they're more of a pointer for our hearts to bow before God and to proclaim that God reigns. So today we will look at Psalm 52, uh, which is a psalm of contrasts, as we will see. The psalm is attributed to David, uh, as, as many are, and say what you will about the life of David, uh, but one thing that we cannot say is that he led a boring life. Uh, I mean, his life certainly had it all. If you made a Netflix show uh, about David's life, it would certainly fill enough material for at least a season, if not uh, multiple seasons. And so this Psalm uh, 52 begins with one such episode uh, in David's life that is actually marked by very tragic circumstances. So let us turn to Psalm 52. So follow along with me uh, in your Bibles or uh, on the screen. This is God's word. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good, in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed, that you have spoken. And we ask now that as we reflect on your word, that it would cause us to bow before your majesty and more deeply behold your glory and the glory of Christ. Send your spirit, Father, to us in heart and in mind that we might hear and know and and rightly apply your word in your name. Amen. So three main things that we will uh, consider this morning as we look at this psalm. Uh, One, the folly of evil. Two, God's judgment. And three, the steadfast love of God. Number one, the folly of evil. 
this psalm, in, in its context, uh, has to do with an episode uh, in David's life uh, that is actually recorded in 1 Samuel 6 through 23, 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. And in verse 1, uh, David levels against a man named Doag the Edomite, uh, whose involvement in David's life is recorded in that 1 Samuel account. Uh, this man, Doeg, was the chief herdsman of King Saul, uh, as the story goes, and one day Saul was essentially reading the riot act to his servants and underlings for not disclosing to him the actions and whereabouts of David. At this time, David had fled from Saul, and Saul was doing everything in his power to keep David at bay uh, because Saul believed at that time, albeit irrationally, that David was trying to supplant him on the throne. So Doag came forward uh, and, and said to Saul, actually, I saw David talking with Ahimelech the priest in the city of Nob. And Ahimelech uh, was helping David out. He gave him some bread and, and actually gave him the sword of Goliath in the way of provisions. So it was then that Saul summoned Ahimelech the priest and all the priests who served with him and accused Ahimelech of conspiring against him with David, to which Ahimelech emphatically denies any wrongdoing against Saul, and more than that, praises the faithfulness of David. However, Saul would hear none of it, and commands that his guard kill Ahimelech and all the priests. However, his guard and the other servants refused to commit this act of atrocity. So it was then that Saul turns to Doag and, and commands him to carry out this act. And Doag seemingly rather easily says, yeah, I'll do it, and proceeds to slaughter 85 priests. And then he puts the city of Nob where they served to the sword, man, woman, child, and animal. Such brutality. Well, David uh, begins his psalm with uh, really a dose of sarcasm, uh, referring to this man, Doag, as a a mighty man, a man of, of boasting, boasting in his evil, boasting in his exploits. And this boasting that David describes here uh, could have an aspect of the typical picture we have of, of boasting where uh, you know, there's a, a pompous uh, outward show uh, that someone makes, uh, you know, just a, an air of, of arrogance. Uh, but the word boasting here, it means more of a, a self-satisfaction as one commentator puts it, uh, you know, someone who thinks he or she is clever or slick, and, um, and that really permeated everything that Doag did. And it very well could be, additionally, that, that Doag was trying to make himself look even better in the eyes of, of Saul, trying to elevate his own status and his willingness to, to carry out this slaughter of these priests and, and these people in the town was a way to achieve that. We really see the extent of, of Doeg's evil ways. And here was a man who hadn't just strayed from the straight and narrow path a little bit. Uh, you know, this wasn't a, a, a moral lapse of judgment where he just kind of slipped up, but he was absolutely bent on destroying people's lives and in the process trying to elevate his own status. Uh, look again at, at verses two through four. 
David uses some graphic words there to describe Doeg's evil. Your tongue plots destruction, worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour. And in verse four, devour really means their uh, confusion. Uh, and in the wisdom books, confusion always describes the path of the wicked in their ways, whereas order describes the path of the righteous. Perhaps you've had an experience uh, in your own lives where you've come face to face with a person who has exhibited this kind of evil intent, uh, maybe not quite to the level of, of Doag and his acts, uh, but one nonetheless whose ways were marked with this kind of, of boasting, uh, of that kind of plotting, you know, just a really a love of doing evil and causing confusion by the use of their words. If not firsthand experience, uh, we can all think of an individual in the past or from our modern times who has exemplified this manner of evil. The late billionaire Jeffrey Epstein comes to mind who spent his life arrogantly and deceitfully using his wealth, using his power, combined with manipulative words to commit just unspeakable acts against young girls and women, forging a path of destruction along the way. Well, with all these heavy thoughts, we, we can almost miss reading through the first part of the psalm, the, the words that David includes in the second half of verse one, where he says, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. This is quite a stark contrast to the boasting of Doag and others like him and, and previews the end of the psalm. So then we have the second main thing this morning, uh, and that is God's judgment, right? As a, a follow-up, uh, as it were, to the folly of evil. And sometimes one word or just two words in the text of scripture uh, says it all and are very important to key in on. Uh, if you look at verse five, you see just two words, but God, but God. And so this represents uh, a sort of turn uh, as the psalm progresses in the way of God's judgment. And David has some very striking metaphors for what God will do in response to Doag's evil, not only against him personally, but against so many others. Uh, if you look at verse five, you, you see these metaphors that David uses. Uh, they are so vivid, and he, he certainly does not uh, mince words there. The words break down give the picture of a structure being demolished. Uh, have you ever seen one of those videos of a, a public building being raised? Uh, you know, they, they wire the building with explosives um, all over the building, and then, uh, you know, they hit the button, um, and then down comes the building seemingly in just a matter of, of seconds. Uh, the word snatch has the picture of yanking a coal out of the fire. Uh, now, at first, when you do that, the coal is going to be blazing hot, right? You still can't put your hand on it uh, or else you'll get burned. But after a while, what happens to the coal apart from the fire? The coal becomes cold and is useless. 
The words tear you from your tent convey the picture of, of homelessness, of being a vagabond, of lacking any family connections and blessings that comes with that. The word uproot suggests the picture of an uprooted tree. Uh, again, think of a time when uh, you've seen um, a, a tree that, that's fallen and the feelings that it invokes when you look at that tree. Uh, at one time, uh, there was life when the tree stood upright, but now there is only death. So David, here in verse 5, uh, expresses a hope that this evil of Doag would not continue forever and would not go unpunished. He looks to God and God's judgment that it will take place. Well, further, we see in verse 6 um, that the righteous shall see and fear God's judgment. And, and David really expands uh, this response uh, to evil beyond himself and to all of God's righteous people. The righteous people of God who put their hope in God, who by faith belong to God and, and look to him for all things. These words see and fear are really similar words in the Hebrew language that are paired together. And so what does it mean to fear in this context? Fear can mean different things. Uh, and ultimately, it's not that the righteous are meant to experience terror in witnessing God's judgment. There, there may be an aspect of that uh, at first as, as they witness God's judgment, but the fear is supposed to be one of reverential awe, of beholding God's holy character, of God's wisdom in his judgments. Psalm 40, verse 3, the second part of the verse says that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So there is a, there is a purpose, there is a, a direction of God's judgment that David wants us to see. And so further, what does it mean for the righteous to laugh at the judgment of God? Uh, that's somewhat of a, a curious uh, expression in this psalm. Uh, I think Psalm 2.4 uh, you know, helps us to understand it. Psalm 2.4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. And this is in response to the kings and rulers of the earth who would plot against God and against God's people. The righteous uh, laugh with God, as it were, as they witness God's power over sin and evil. However, we must have wisdom when it comes to our response. Uh, after all, Jesus does command us to pray for our enemies, and we should never cease to do that. And Proverbs 24, 17 gives us these instructions. It says there, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So our, our laughing should not come from a spirit of malice or vindictiveness, as one commentator puts it. But at the same time, evil is not God's design for the world, and God will not let evil stand forever. So we can't have assurance that God is the final judge, the final arbiter between good and evil, that righteousness will be victorious over evil. 
And I think it is good and right to, to praise God for his righteous judgments throughout history, uh, even the ones that we witness uh, today. We can praise God when an, an individual who has spent his or her life harming others or abusing others is brought to justice and is finally stopped from perpetrating evil. Or when an evil, oppressive regime is toppled, we can praise God for these things. The folly of evil, God's judgment. And then we come to the third thing, a steadfast love of God. So I want to talk about uh, olives uh, as we consider the steadfast love of God and the olive tree. David writes in verse 8, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I don't know if you've ever seen an olive tree in person. I can't say that I ever have. We might be in the wrong part of the world um, to, to see an olive tree in person. But I pulled up some images of olive trees uh, on the internet. And I was noticing that there's nothing particularly uh, striking about the size of the olive tree. Uh, it certainly doesn't have the, uh, the sheer massiveness of a sequoia or a, a redwood tree, if you've ever seen one of those. Uh, and there's nothing particularly striking about the color of the leaves. Uh, you know, they're nice and green, but nothing certainly that stands out with, uh, with the leaves themselves. Uh, a couple of the trees I saw in the images had some pretty cool looking roots, but, but other than that, it, it sort of just looks like a, a normal tree. However, the olive tree uh, is a symbol of, of flourishing and productivity, and the Israelites would have seen it as such. There are all kinds of references uh, throughout scripture to uh, the olive tree. Uh, some can live for hundreds of years, uh, some even up to a thousand years. That's incredible. Olive trees provide food, of course, in the olives themselves. Uh, a tree is capable of producing about six gallons of oil in a year. That's a lot of oil. Uh, additionally, uh, the oil could be used for fuel or medicinal purposes. And even the wood of the olive tree uh, would be used for construction uh, material. The olive tree is a pretty, pretty amazing. I had no idea. So the olive tree was important in the life and economy of Israel, vastly important, and thus was that symbol of life and, and blessedness. Psalm 128 even compares children sitting around the table uh, to olive shoots. And so David likens himself to the life-giving olive tree and wants us to see the same thing for our lives as people of God. And more than that, he is firmly planted in the house of God, in God's presence. And what a contrast that is, the life and blessedness of, of the righteous, like the flourishing olive tree compared to the judgment and destruction that comes to the wicked. And so what is the source of David's confidence? What is the source of our confidence? Well, David wants us to see quite vividly that it is trusting in God's steadfast love. Observe the further contrast in verse seven between the righteous person and his or her object of trust 
and the object of trust of, of Doeg and, and those like him who would not make God his refuge, who trusted in the abundance of his riches. Trusting ultimately in riches or in power or in any other kind of worldly pursuit or treasure inevitably leads not to life and blessedness, but to destruction ultimately taken until the end to death. And so we think about trust and we ask ourselves this morning, what are the things that we are placing our trust in rather than God, rather than his steadfast love? Any number of things can hold our trust other than God himself. Our relationships, our work, our, our money or our financial situations, our performance in general before God or before people, our unmet desires, our circumstances, whether pleasant or difficult, our outlook on uh, our city or our nation or our world. Any number of these things and more can, can hold our trust, can be the things that we look to ultimately for our security and our assurance. Coupled with that, what is it that the world is continually telling us to do? We've all heard it, to, to believe in ourselves, to, to trust in ourselves, to, to find our, our truest self, and that is where we will find our happiness our fulfillment. Rather, it is God's love that we are to trust in, the love that called us from eternity by name to be his people. It is God's love that led and preserved the Israelites time and time again. And it is God's love that would send his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to take on flesh, to live perfectly for us, in perfect obedience unto God, his Father, to go to the cross, to die for us sacrificially, not for his own sin and wrongdoing, because he had none, but, but for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame. It was Jesus who, who bore the wrath of God upon his shoulders. And it is God's love that is so gloriously demonstrated at the cross that is steadfast, that never lets us go. Despite the times that we want to run from God and the times that we seek life elsewhere. Uh, Tremper Longman sees uh, Psalm 52, quote, as a prayer of Jesus, who is attacked by wicked human and spiritual agents, but nevertheless puts his hope in God and though he suffers death, is ultimately victorious, unquote. Well, David also wants to point our hearts to this practice of thanking God. And our lives should be marked continually by a thankfulness and a praise unto God. Why? Because he, God, has done it. If you look at verse 9, David writes there, what our prayers should echo loudly with, because you have done it. Hear the words also 
from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says there, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And and what a beautiful way indeed that, that David concludes this psalm, building upon his trust in God's love and his, his praise of God and how we are to trust in God's love and praise God. And it's this posture of waiting on God's good name that David uh, attaches to that, waiting on God's good name and where in the presence of the godly, in the presence of the saints. Uh, how beautiful it is that, uh, that we can praise God together as God's people. Life is full of waiting, is it not? Uh, and to be sure, waiting can be difficult. We usually don't like to wait. Um, but we don't simply wait for humanity to get their act together or simply wait for things to change in general. We do wait on the Lord who is full of wisdom and full of strength. Our assurance is in the Lord, like David's, and is cause for us to praise the Lord always in worship. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, and I just, I just love this quote. He wrote, I feel like that good old saint who said that if she got to heaven, Jesus Christ should never hear the last of it. Truly, he never shall that our lives, both private and public, would be characterized by that kind of of praise that just flows from us as we think about who God is, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, as as we wait in this life, but as our waiting is marked by a hope of heaven. Thanks be to our God who loves us and truly does reign forever. Let's pray.